0: Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5, and we're going to read from verses 1 through to 14. 2 Kings chapter 5. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now the bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, "If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy." Naaman went to his master and told him, uh, "Sorry." Naaman went to his master and told him what the king, what the girl from Israel had said. "By all means, go," the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 10,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel said, read, with this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. But Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes and sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Make the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go, Wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely, would, come, surely, uh, would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpah, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Now Naaman's servants went went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you wanted to make a list of people in the Old Testament who are unlikely to experience the mercy of God, you would put someone like Naaman high up on that list. He was not Part of God's chosen people, the Israelites. As far as we knew, no, he never prayed to God in his life. He doesn't keep the Ten Commandments. He doesn't fight to protect God's people. In fact, what we learn in verses 1 through to 3 is that he was the polar opposite of that. He is the proud commander of a foreign army with a bit of a superiority comp- complex, as we'll, as we'll see later. And he's a recently attacked God's people, and he's taken this young Israelite girl captive as a domestic servant. And on top of all of that, he's inflicted with this skin disease of leprosy which makes him ceremonially unclean. So even if he wanted to, which we don't think he does, he could not go to worship the God of Israel. And yet this is a story of God's plan for him. Now you might be sat here today thinking God is utterly disinterested in you disinterested in you because of what you do believe or don't believe, disinterested because of something you worry that you've done wrong, disinterested because you think other people are more needy or more worthy. But this sketch of Naaman's life that this story starts with tells us that God is interested in those who have it all together as well as those who don't. He cares just as much about those who know they've done much bad as those who think they've done much good. In short, that God is interested in those who are completely disinterested in him. Now in verse 4, we meet the subversive heroine of the story. The young girl whom Naaman has captured and taken from her home and her family in Israel into Aram, this neighbouring country that he lives in and fights for. Now, she could not have had less social status than Naaman. And yet the Bible recounts how she is a faithful, empowered servant of the living God. In the eyes of the world, she might have been weak, but in the eyes of God, she was mighty. Do you see what's happened here? We're we're viewing the world through the eyes of God. That's what the Bible, in particular, this story is helping us to do. We get a glimpse of the world from God's perspective, where the victim becomes the victor, where the powerless become powerful, where the weak become strong. The world may think that she was a servant of Naaman, but she knows herself to be a servant of the living God. And she doesn't use this influence and this knowledge of God to get revenge, but rather to bless. Her small voice is mighty because she speaks of the power of the living God to heal. And restore And so Naaman, no doubt desperate for healing, requests permission from his king to go to this foreign nation to buy his way into God's favor with vast wealth. And he turns up at the royal court of Israel, expecting God to be found in the grandest of places, and is instead redirected to the unremarkable house of the prophets of God. And we know it's unremarkable, because the Bible doesn't remark on it. And he's greeted there, not with the grand acclaim that he thinks he's going to be afforded, but just by a servant who comes out with a simple message to go and wash in the Jordan River seven times. And he goes off in a rage. Naaman goes off in a rage because his pride has been offended, his sense of self has been offended. He's used to the world working in, in one way, and yet here he encounters God who doesn't work that way. He's used to being able to get what he wants by a combination of his wealth, his social status, and his military might. And yet suddenly he encounters the way of God where these currencies, which can buy so much in the world, are worthless. God has no want for wealth. He does not clamor for acclaim and he is not impressed with prowess. An encounter with God should reorient our worldview. We should be prepared for that as we read this story, that God is wanting to reorient our world view when we come into the contact come into contact with the reality of who He is. And yet it is this encounter that turns Naaman's life upside down and is so uncomfortable to start with that actually leads to his healing. Naaman's servant, again, God uses those whom society dishonours to bring wisdom to those whom society honours. His servant persuades him to go down to the Jordan. And as he rises up out of the river, he's completely healed and restored. So if you like, this, these 14 verses are Naaman's testimony. It's the story of how he came to worship the living God and how his life was transformed. And what we're going to see is that his testimony is like a template or a case study for how God still meets us today. So let's look at how God has been working in Naaman's past, how he has a plan for Naaman's future and where he meets him in his present moment. So let's look at his past. Whilst it's not recorded here, we can imagine the kind of life that Naaman must have lived to get where he did. Keeping his head down and learning to train and fight as a young boy, and then starting out as a low-ranking soldier, trying to prove himself. And then moving on to the next rank, the next task, trying to excel in what Aramean culture valued. And then finally, he finds himself as the commander in the king's army, who's greatly valued by this powerful king. He is a man who's locked on to his plan for his life. And what he doesn't realize is that God has had far more to say in the matter than he first imagined. Let's look at verse two. Verse two says that that all of this victory that he has got, he was given by the Lord. God has given him these victories. He thought it was all because of his good work and his own life choices. But what he didn't know is that God, whom he may never have paid even a moment's notice to, was at work in his life. God was at work in Naaman's life long before he knew it. And God is at work in our lives long before we often recognize it. When I look at my own life, I can pinpoint this date when I became a Christian aged 16. But it's not like up until then, for many, many years, God was utterly, you know, didn't even know I was there. And then mid-2010, his alarm clock went off one day and he thought, oh, I should really speak into Brogan's life today. That's not how it worked. I can see God's mercy in my childhood. I can see how he's been working in our family through past generations. God has worked in my life long before I learned to recognize it. And the same is true for all of us. Now, if you're just exploring faith today, perhaps you're only starting to be interested in God, then know this, God has been interested and longed for you, long, long before you gave him a moment's thought. God has been interested in you long before you became interested in him. God has ordered and structured your life in such a way that he has brought you to this moment of hearing his word and being invited to respond to him. And there is a great freedom, therefore, in knowing that whatever we have that would be counted success in the eyes of the world. For Naaman, it was military victories. For us, it could be our house, it could be our job, it could be our family, it could be our wealth, it could be our social position. Whatever it is that we have that is of value is a gift from God intended to be used for his glory and to point us back to him. Naaman was meant to look at his victories and say, surely someone else was at work here. But he didn't, and yet God found a way to break in. So where might God have been working in your life long before you recognised it? For some of us now, we might even be making connections of things that we hadn't seen before. For some of us, we're becoming aware that these things that we value so greatly are not just down to our own smart life choices, but rather a gift from God. And others of us may be feeling a sense of regret lifted off. Because this truth puts an end to all those questions. If only I'd said yes to that job or that relationship or that investment. If only I'd met that person sooner or worked harder or been more faithful to God in that area. All of your life, good or bad, the prosperity and the pain is held within God's. Providence is held within God's love, is held within God's power and God's mercy. There is nothing wasted, no mistake, irredeemable, and nothing beyond his mercy. So God's been at work in our past to prepare us for our future. God has a plan for Naaman's future. Where does this story start? It starts with healing. Naaman wants healing. And he goes to God to get it. Naaman hoped that God's plan for his life is that Naaman would rock up with all of his you know, military accolades and all of the stuff that he's got ahead of him and that important meeting that he's got next week. And then he'd turn to the side for one second. God would give him a little bit of quick healing and then he'd continue on with his life. That is Naaman's best case scenario. But what we find out is that God has something very different and much better for Naaman. God was not just interested in improving Naaman's future. He was out to transform Naaman's future. Naaman wanted a future with the benefits of God's power, but God had a future for him with the benefits of his presence. And the trigger word for understanding all of this is the name of a river, the Jordan. Now Naaman, I'll give him some credit, he makes a good point in saying that there are far bigger, far grander, probably far cleaner rivers elsewhere in the region. But the River Jordan here is significant because it's not just a river. It's the place where God's people entered into the promised land. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling of coming home over the Tyne Bridge. As I've been training for ordination, I've been down in Durham two or three days a week and I'd always drive back over the Tyne Bridge. And it serves as a a marker point. There are far, I'm going to ruin this for some of you, there are far bigger and far grander and far cleaner bridges out there, elsewhere in the world. But for us, that serves as a marker point because it's where we know that we are coming home. And the Jordan is a bit like that, but on an even grander and more cosmic scale. You can read the story in Joshua uh, uh, chapters 1 through to 4. After 40 years in the wilderness, God's people stand on the edge of the river Jordan and they can see the promised land ahead of them. In our terms, they're stood in Gateshead (laughs) and they can see the promised land (laughs) of Pilgrim Street and the Haymarket and all the rest of it ahead of them. And God intervenes and he dries up the river, and they walk through the river bed unharmed and into the promised land. And this was in the psyche of God's people. So imagine what they must have been thinking when this foreigner comes down to the Jordan River to be washed. It'd be an alarm going. He's not just having a bath. He's entering into the promised land. He's entering into a covenant with God. What God is saying about Naaman's future is that he claims Naaman for himself. That Naaman is invited in. That this man who has never worshipped God in his life has just got the call up for not to another military position, but to a relationship with the living God. God's plan for Naaman's life was not simply to improve the body he had. It was to give him a life that he didn't have. But this story, as wonderful as it is, points to an even greater moment in the Jordan River. I'd love you to turn with me to Mark chapter 1, verse 9. So with that understanding of the Jordan now let's hear this At that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee to be baptized by John in the Jordan Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water he saw heaven being torn open and the dove descending on him uh, the spirit descending, descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven you are my son whom I love With you, I am well pleased. It is no accident that 850 years later, Jesus would be baptised in the same waters that Naaman was healed in, would be baptised in the same waters that dried up so that people could enter into the promised land. And whereas Naaman came to them begrudgingly, Jesus comes to them gladly. Why? Because these are the waters that would grant a new future, not just to one man, but to many who are far off. As we follow Jesus' example, we are baptised into his baptism. And in that passage, we learn what the promised land is. When you become a Christian here at St. Thomas's, we do not give you a ticket on a plane to Israel. (laughs) We baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, because in Christ, the promised land is not a matter of geography. It's a matter of relationship. And so we're invited into a relationship where these words are spoken over us every single morning. You are my son. You are my daughter, whom I love love. With you, I am well pleased. We may have just come to God wanting a little bit of healing, or a little bit of purpose, or a little bit of community, or a little bit of reassurance, or a little bit of peace. But God's plan for us is not simply to improve our lives, to improve the life that we have, but to give us a life that we don't have. We too were outside the people of God. We too didn't understand how much we needed God. We too have simply tried to have God as an add-on. But we too were brought into an eternal relationship which changes our future through the waters. Let's keep going. God meets us in the moment. It's striking that God uses two elements of Naaman's life to try and get his attention. Uh, The first, as we've already looked at, is success. The fact that he's this successful military leader. As we've seen, this is from God, not simply from Naaman. But it's not just the heights of Naaman's life that are there to get his attention. In fact, the most powerful aspect seems to be his lowest moment. God uses the circumstances of Naaman's physical sickness to reveal himself. Now there is nothing in this text to suggest that God has caused this leprosy, but it is true that God uses this moment to break into Naaman's life and bring healing. He meets Naaman in the moment of his pain. It's not a sickness that he causes, but it is a sickness that he uses. I've seen this in my life. When I was 16, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, which is an autoimmune condition that I continue to receive treatment for. Now, the circumstances of that sickness and that illness revealed to me something of my own weakness and something of my own fragility. But the end of that story is not that I was diagnosed with an incurable disease. The end of that story is that God used that moment in my life to call me to himself, to call me into a relationship, to make me part of his people. That is the highest calling. And then within that also now to set me aside as a deacon. It was a moment of weakness that God broke in. As I said, I'm not suggesting that God causes sickness. That's not what this text is saying. But I am testifying to you that God uses sickness. And in so doing, he redeems it. Suffering for a follower of Jesus is not arbitrary and it is not meaningless. And success is not simply a product of our own hard work for us to take pride in. Success and suffering are both place markers for where God wants to meet us. These are moments when we step back and we see either how frail we are or how much favour we've been granted. And we turn to the God who is sovereign over all. These are moments that are designed to call us into a relationship with God for the first time or deeper into a relationship with God day after day after day thereafter. God has been working in your past. God has a plan for your future. And God wants to meet you in this moment. As we come now to communion, I'd love you to ask that question. Lord, where are you meeting me today? Where are you meeting me in the highs? Where are you meeting me in the lows? And what are you saying to me about them that you might transform them for your glory? Amen.